Greetings, everyone. Uh, Chief Yuya, you're listening to the Chief Yuya podcast, and we are uh, covering the film, The Never Ending Story. All right. So I want to just, as always, I like to jump right into it. And, you know, we're, of course, on our third film. We did uh, 1984. We did Conan the Barbarian. And now we're on Never Ending Story. This may be the last one in this series. I'm not sure. I got one more I may want to throw in there, but I haven't made that decision as of yet, even though we're on the last one. So we'll see. I might do a bonus addendum film, you know, considering, depending on how uh, people take to uh, these. And if you're able to really kind of hear the message. So anyway, let's get right into it. So the never ending story film came out in 1984 and, um, you know, we've been dealing with these films from like 82 to 85 around there because like I shared, uh, Hollywood was doing a lot of work around that time, around that Reagan era and really doing a lot of work to, um, reinforce certain concepts of the sixties and dismantle certain concepts of the sixties and really set us up you know, for where we are today, which we really covered a lot of that in 1984. And um, you see, of course, uh, 1984, there's like some really strong childhood themes. And even in the, in the aspect of how the people or the, the party, as they're called, are kind of really kept in a childlike state of uh, ignorance, you know, and innocence to a degree, but definitely of uh, ignorance. So we have the same going forward when we looked at Conan and Bar- the Barbarian and looked at some of the things that happened to him in his childhood and in his youth. And then now when we look at the never ending story, which uh, a lot of people maybe remember it from their childhood, you know, if you're, I guess, uh, I guess you'd have to be mid thirties to maybe 50 or somewhere around there. I would say uh, it would be a, a film of your, of your youth. But um, the reality is when you really look at it and you look at the amount of symbolism that uh, was put into the actual movie, you definitely realize that uh, it had a it had a deeper agenda, you know, uh, instilled in it beyond just, you know, a child just having a little fun adventure adventure fairy tale. Right. Even though, of course, most fairy tales have a deeper esoteric meaning, too. But this was a, a German flick. And, you know, a lot of times when you get um, films from Europe, whether it's the Germans or the French, uh, they may throw a lot of esoteric in it. But their their agenda is a bit different. Uh, not to say that they're not a part of the global elitist agenda, because they actually are. And this film was about that, you know, on a on a physical level. Of course, you had the esoteric and you had the exoteric. Um, but, and there were different, there were different themes going on at the same time, but, uh, it definitely didn't go far from, again, the idea of global elitism, you know, but we'll, we'll get into that. So, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. And, uh, like I said, it came out in 84 and, um, you know, right from the very beginning of the work, it, they gave you. From the very beginning, they gave you what it is, you know, and I I always appreciate films like that where it's not a whole lot of, you know, I mean, I don't mind trying to figure it out, but it's it's always cool when you get right into the action 
of the actual theme and what's actually going on right from the beginning. So um, the the movie had kind of like a, a dualistic uh, spotlight on who we who we would call the star, of course. Right. So let's just start with who we encountered first. We encountered uh, the first character. He wakes out of a dream. Right. And he's pretty much the protagonist of the entire film um, in a way. Right. And we'll we'll get into why we say in a way. But uh, his name is um, Bastian, you know, Bastian. And, um, you know, it's a common German name and typically a shortened form of Sebastian. But of course, when you're dealing with a movie, you can't exclude <laughs> you can't exclude anything. Right. So. um there's so many themes here that you start to realize, like they crammed a lot into the never ending story. There was so much crammed into this movie that um, it was interesting because it was a lot crammed into it, but you won't really miss any of it. You know, it wasn't it, it was pretty it was overt. But that's what I said, like from the very beginning, from the first scene, they just started giving it to you. He wakes up out of a dream. He's startled. His name is Bastian Balthazar Bucks. You know, he's played by um, um, uh, Barrett. Barrett Oliver is his, is his uh, quote unquote real name. But uh, his character's name was Bastian Balthazar Bucks. Right. So you you already got BBB. Right. Not only do you have a I don't want to say an unusual name, but, you know, in, in some ways we could call it an, an unusual name. But um, outside of that, you you have this idea of or this concept of BBB. And, you know. Um, Bastian is a, is an interesting name. We just look at the first name, right? Because there's different ways that you could look at it. Of course you could look at Sebastian, uh, but you always got to go a little de deeper. So you have Bastian as a name, B-A-S-T-I-A-N, right? You have that name Bastian, but then if you look at it phonetically or listen to it phonetically, you have Bastion, B-A-S-T-I-O-N. You know, and of course, the, there should be an, an interplay between the, between the two of them. Uh, Bastion is it comes from a French word, Bastier, and it represents a building or to build something or more importantly, a fortress, something that's been protected, something that's been um, strengthened and fortified. That's the idea of, of a Bastion. And then, um, you know, of course, we have uh, Bastion. B A S T B A S T I, excuse me, A N. And, um, you know, there's another special concept in terms of that name as well, because, you know, it, coming from the Sebastian, um, in the German, there's a, there's an inference to that name representing the dreamer, right? So he wakes up. First thing we see, he wakes up out of a dream and the clock is around like six thirty, seven thirty, something like that. Um, my copy was not that clear. <laughs> so I, I, uh, and I only, I only saw it, you know, in order to, to do this segment, I looked at it about one. Yeah. I looked at it one time. So just to kind of refresh my memory, but, um, I had an old, old, uh, copy that, um, cause I haven't watched it in so long. So when I first got it, it was probably like, I don't know. It's just, it's a really small copy. It's really, it's literally like 200, megapixels by 200 megapixels is that small right so it's tiny 
so I couldn't see everything. Uh, but I remember some of these things again from before. But um, he wakes up. And I know the, the, the clock is around 6.30, 7.30, somewhere around there. If it's 6.30, then, it, you know, that would explain some things. But I think it was actually 7.30. But nonetheless, he the first place he, he first thing he does when he wakes up, he, he looks to the right time. He looks to the right. He doesn't even look to the left. He just looks to the right. Then he looks forward. So looking to the right, he's looking at the clock. So that gives us an idea of the world that he currently lives in. Right now, let me just kind of make some things clear too with this. Um, as I told you, each film that we did, I'm maintaining a certain kind of um, theme. And whereas with Conan, uh, no, we start, I'm sorry, with 1984, we were dealing with the idea of new speak you know, kind of changing and, and distorting language in order to frame a different reality and to strengthen and fortify strongman arguments. And then we, we went over to Conan where, you know, we, we dealt with the, the uh, stoicism and, you know, with Conan, we, we also, well, we dealt with a lot with Conan, but we also dealt with the idea of like, how do you create a perfect child soldier, you know? Um, and then of course there was some sexual themes in that as well but just like with 1984 there were also some sexual themes but um so this this one that we're looking at now we're putting it together and we're we're looking at the idea of imagination and most importantly the decimation of imagination now this is something that happens in childhood as you see in this in this story which is why it becomes so significant to every single thing that we're looking at in fact um if you if you put these three movies together, 1984 would be the beginning in a way. Conan would be the middle struggle of life in between. And the never ending story would be the end in a way, but not the end, because, again, it's a never ending story. So there's a there's a recycling of things. But if, if you're able to work through those things and finally achieve triumph, that's what you would see in a never ending story. Right. So that's that's kind of the movement, the progression of it, you know. But anyway. So, like I said, his name was uh, Bastian, you know, and Bastian, Bastian, Balthazar Bucks. Now, obviously, you hear a name like that. This is a wizard. You know, it's, this is a wizard. Obviously, um, we know that not only from his name, Balthazar, um, which is a very interesting name and you know I'll, I'll break some of that down as well as even bucks bucks um german name but you know meaning uh beach or meaning the sand now that will make sense to you later so just kind of make your note you know meaning the 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 sand or you know or or the beach but um then you have belthazar which was his three i mean i'm sorry his middle name uh out of the three and of course you know belthazar was one of the the uh magi uh, who came, uh, who was one of, who was a king who came to, uh, according to legend, who came to, uh, see the, uh, baby Yahshua, you know, or the baby Yahawashai. So it was also, uh, noted that Balthazar was from Arabia. He was actually a Moor. Okay. So, uh, and there's more to that because Balthazar is actually two different names. Uh, Balthazar is, it's a name in Hebrew, but then it's also a name in Arabic. So you have Balthazar and, and Belshazzar. And the key 
with that. I don't want to get into the name too much because I, I could actually break this one down a lot. It's a very interesting name because anytime you see that bell or you see bow, you, you're dealing with the deity bow, B-A-A-L. Okay, so that bow is, is like, once you see that, you know, like, oh, okay, we're talking about some Babylonian uh, energy there. Once I see bow, it's, you know, it's about, to, <laughs> it's about to get deep, you know, once you kind of see that name. But um, you have bow or, you know, you have bow and then you have uh, ta-asir uh, ta or ta-asar, which is also has Akkadian roots, ta-asar. So now you already know, wow, I got Asar. You know who Asar is, Osiris. Ta is to protect. You know, so Ta Asar, Baal Ta Asar. You know, Baal protects the king. You know, Asar is considered to be the king or the ruler. You know, um, so his middle name is, you know, the, the energy of Baal. It protects the king, right? So, and there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother magical alchemical path just on that name alone that's why i'm trying not to uh try not to stick there too much all right so and for the sake of brevity so we go we keep going right and the next thing we see is he and his father are in the kitchen right which is the lab of course and uh well actually there yeah it's like a kitchen slash dining room kind of kind of area and um He's trying to get a jar open and he's struggling and his father is over there, uh, you know, blending up some things, making making the breakfast. And the first thing the father says, is, he's like, you know, I got a call from your math teacher today. He said, you know, um, your math teacher said you were drawing some horses in your in your math book. And, you know, uh, Bastion is like unicorns. They were unicorns. And the father's like, what? And Bastion's just like, oh, no, nothing. Right now, that was a significant scene for several, several reasons. One of the things is that you'll see right there in that scene that Bastian is making pyramids with his hands. Look at his look at his hand. OK, and when you look at his hand, you're going to see what he's doing. And I and I, I believe it's his left hand. Right. Which is significant. Pay attention to that. He's using his left hand and he's making a pyramid with the hand. And he puts it in front of him. So like when you're looking at it from the camera angle, that's the first thing you see. You see this pyramid, right? While his father's talking to him about something that is earthly. And he's saying, no, I am writing things that are spiritual. I'm talking, I'm, I, I made a unicorn, not a horse, right? And he realizes his father just wouldn't understand. His father is very linear, linear. You know, he, he represents that more linear uh, energy. But also his father is a bit of a savage, <laughs> you know, because his mother has died. We find out and his, his father is basically like, you got to get over that. You know, we got to move on with our lives. You got to get over it. But we also kind of know that he's a bit of a savage because he's making a shake for himself and he takes some raw eggs and he puts it into the blender. So right there, we kind of get a sense like, OK, he's you know, he's eating he's eating raw animals, you know. Um, so that becomes significant later, right? When we, when we look, when we think about wild beast, all right? So he's going to be related to a wild beast later. And essentially he's, he's, his father's an agent. Essentially his father's an agent. His father is trying to get him to assimilate into the world of the quote unquote real, you know, but the world, the linear world. And he's like, you know, Bastion, you got to get your head out the clouds. Like, you know, 
yeah, your mother died, but it's time to move on. And, you know, um, he's like, I, I can't even believe that, you know, you asked me about getting um, horse riding lessons, you know, but, um, you know, you're you're afraid to get on a horse. And he's like, and I'm disappointment, disappointed that you didn't even try out for the swim team. That was also very significant, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Right. So we start to see that, you know, between he and his father, that, um, there's definitely like, you know, his father's a bit more linear, a bit more methodical, maybe even a bit more cold and uncaring, which is significant too to this. And, um, Bastion is kind of, uh, not just in the world of fantasy, you know, but Bastion is, is definitely interested in things that are beyond, you know, what humans are doing. And we know the significance because we find out that like he hasn't been turning in his math homework on time. His father points that out. And, you know, he doesn't really, re you know, reply too much because essentially he doesn't care. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of speed it up. And I'm, and I'm, and I hope that you have seen the film by now. You know, obviously I told you from the first, one that we'd be covering the never ending story. So willfully you, you would have actually have watched it. But, um, so now we go into, um, if we kind of just, we have the unicorn piece, um, and just know that when he says it's a unicorn, we immediately know at that point that that's a, that's a foreshadowing of a messianic energy. You know, back in the days in, in antiquity, the, the early churches actually associated the unicorn with Christ. So I know a lot of times when you see the unicorn now, you think it's like some occult pagan stuff. That's not really how it started, you know, because there's always a there's a physical representation or a mundane representation of things. And then there's a spiritual. So just like how you have air and then its spiritual representation would be ether. You can have a horse and then that spiritual representation would be the unicorn. You see, so um, as soon as you see that unicorn, yeah, we're talking about the first eye and stuff. I, I taught you that years ago, so that that's not new, but I'm giving you a little extra on that. Um, we're talking about the, the mystical aspect of uh, Christianity, right? Because every religion has its profane aspect for like the layman to understand, do good, do this, do that. But then every spirituality has a mystical aspect. And most of the time, the people who are... <laughs> dead set on the layman aspect they'll tell you that the mystical aspect is like the evil part they'll always say that to you you know and you have to go through the through the mundane to get to the mystical so one of the problems like we have in culture communities is that people just want to go right to the mystical without ever understanding the the concrete of where the mystical springs from it's kind of like um with fighting you have 52 style block fighting and there's people who watch videos on youtube and they watch 52 block and they're like wow that looks so amazing that looks like this it looks like that you know i want to learn how to do 52 block or, or like some people call it jailhouse rock or 52 pickup but the thing is if you don't have a solid foundation in boxing it doesn't work it ain't gonna work for you you know you're gonna get hurt doing 52 block you know so you have to start with the boxing first before you go over to the more slick and, you know, energetic movements of the 52 block. So it's the same thing with, with anything, right? So it, the story progresses. He He's on his way to school and he encounters three bullies. Okay. And that's a very significant scene. Three bullies. He encounters three bullies and they're like, hey, uh, you know, give us some money. 
you know, they call him the chicken. So these are obviously bullies that have been messing with him for a while. And they're like, oh, mommy's boy, you know, like they're making fun of a, you know, calling him a mama's boy. Whether they don't specifically specifically say that his mother has died, but um, they call him a mama's boy. So there's there's certain inferences there, obviously. Um, so what's critical in this? Now we got the unicorn piece, and I'm trying not to do a full breakdown, just so you know, I'm gonna be jumping a little bit, um, because there's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot here, and it's really one theme that we're really working on here. But there's a lot that I could pull out of this, um, especially if I if I go back and watch it again, or if I play it while I'm talking and narrate, then we could really we'd be here forever. <laughs> so I don't want to do that. But um, the three bullies are significant. They ask him for some money. He's like, I don't have any. You know, he's got this real annoying voice, <laughs> and um, they're like, Well, we're gonna throw we're gonna throw him in the garbage can. They go to beat him up. And he runs and they and they go after him and they throw him into a garbage can, right? Now, all of that was so significant because right there between the unicorn and that scene, we pretty much know what's going to happen next. We know the movie now, right? So, of course, that was a reference. And then, of course, we utilize his name too, knowing his name. That was a reference to him being Hiram Abith, right? The three bullies were significant because... You know, you can interpret them as different things, but these are three, um, these are three impediences or three obstacles to really activating and manifesting what's in the conscious mind, right? So, like in Masonic, uh, teaching, they'll teach you, like, okay, the, the three obstacles are passion, lust, and ignorance, right? So, um, the whole thing with them throwing them in there was I saw it immediately. Okay. He's hiring a Biff. He's, he's the, he's the architect. Cause you got to look at his name too. Bastion Balthazar bucks. So his name Bastion essentially means the fortress of the building. It's an, it's a reference to being an architect. And remember Hiram a Biff was, was taken and he was set upon by three ruffians, right? So we have that idea and he was murdered in the temple by the three ruffians um, because they forced him to they tried to force him to, to to give the master Mason secrets and he wouldn't do it. Right. So they throw him in a red garbage can. Now, one of the things that was interesting is that red garbage can had hay in it. And we go back, you look at that scene, you see a hay on hay inside of the garbage can. But they were in the middle of the city. So, again, there's a reference there to to the horse aspect. You know, or maybe they just threw hay in there because he was a little kid. They didn't want to get wanted to get hurt. But I don't think that they could have put a mattress in there. You know, they could have put some cardboard boxes and put some mattress or whatever. But there's hay in there. Right. So that represented to me also a rebirthing of sorts. You know, the three ruffians set upon him. They kill him. They bury him. And then he resurrects. So he gets out of the garbage can, but they see him again. And they're like, yo, nobody told you you got out the garbage can. <laughs> And he's like, oh, not again. And uh, he starts running. He runs into a bookstore, right, which is significant, of course, because now we, you know, he basically runs into a magician. Now, we don't know that yet in the beginning of the story. But like I said, I'm I'm giving it to you in a, in a different kind of way. You know, I'm not doing it step by step, per se. Um, so now we get once he runs into that magician, now we kind of get a. A really good sense of what the heck is is 
happening, what's what's or what's going to get to happen, you know, get 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 to happening <laughs> if we know how to um, if we know how to really look at it. Um, so he goes into the bookstore and the books, the, the guys like get out. I don't like kids. Right. So he's a reference later to the great turtle. So I'm just going to say that now. Um, he's like, I don't like children. Get out. Right. And uh, he's like, please. You know, he's like, he's like, what are you in here? He's like, you're hiding. He was like, uh, the arcade is down the street. Now, a lot of you probably don't even know what an arcade is. But um, it's where people used to go to play like gaming systems, you know. But um, he was like, no, he was like, all we have in here is books. And he was like, I have books. And he said, I have 186 of them. That was a clue right there. He's a seeker of knowledge. He's a seeker of knowledge. Right. And um, when he says that, he's like, the, the, the guy's like, ah, you got comic books. Get up out of here. You got comic books. And um, he says, no, I have Treasure Island, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, Wizard of Oz. Like he's naming all of these esoteric books. But this is a little boy. So when he says that, um, you know, he the the store owner is like, oh, come here, come closer. And then he starts to talk to him. Right. So there's a whole scene with that. Like uh, I could do a whole thing there. I don't want to go too far on that. But essentially. He he is showing him like he's like, well, the books that you like to read, you can be those people in the moment. Right. And he was like, yeah, that's what I love about it. He was like, but what if you were that person and you were trapped? And he was like, well, that's impossible. They're just books. And he was like, exactly. So he has his book on his table called The Never Ending Story. And um, he was like, well, what about that book? And he's like, nah, you ain't you ain't built for that book. That, ain't, that book ain't for you. You know, now that was that was significant. Right. He sees a symbol on the book and we may know the symbol as as the Ouroboros. Right. But we get a different name for the for the symbol later. Right. We'll get into that in a, in a minute. But um, he was like, what about that book? He was like, nah, this 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 book ain't for you. Right now. As a Magi, as an alchemist, and sometimes I, I tell uh, like the ministry members and I knew, you know, sometimes you have to trick your people into waking them up. It's not as easy as just saying this or saying that because. Well, people are very hard headed, honestly, you know, they're very hard headed. And um, a lot of times they're also very arrogant. You know, they think they know everything already. So you really just can't um, you just can't give it to them straight. Whatever you give to them straight, they're going to tell you they already knew. That's what they always do. Whenever you give them straight dope, just like now I'm doing this movie breakdown. You know how many people are listening, not taking notes, saying, yeah, I knew that. I knew that, of course. And they didn't know. They did not. They did not freaking know. You see, so sometimes you have to trick them into teaching them. So you might say, "Oh, you already knew this, right?" Oh, okay, cool. So, what did you think about the next scene? Well, no, no, I, you you do it. I let you say it. No, no, I'm saying I'm. We let's share. Let's do this together. I do that in lectures all the time. When I get that, it's always that loud mouth in the lecture who's, as I'm talking, they sitting there with their arms folded, talking like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and jumping in like we doing it together, like it's an open discussion. And then I'll just throw the whole lecture on them. So what did you think about this part? How do you decipher the code, this, that, that? And then that's usually when they sit up, they change their position and everything. Yeah, you ain't so confident now. So shut the F up. 
right? So <laughs> sometimes you gotta you gotta trick people into teaching them, right? So that's really what this scene was because real wisdom is always hidden from the world, and it's only available to the knowledge seekers, right? And the knowledge seeker has to be a pure one, you know. That's why a lot of times some of these stories, a lot, well, most of them. You know, there's children, there's either young children or teenagers because they represent those who are still still have a pure heart because the ones who have a pure heart are able to see things that like Bastian's father couldn't because he's been corrupted and solidified and scared into the world of the living. So, you know, he he sees the book. Now, of course, the symbol on the book, and this is obviously a magical book, right? We're not told that yet, but the symbol on the book is of a serpent eating its own tail. Many of you are familiar with that. It's the Ouroboros. Uh, we also have that in Ifa with the mudfish. Um, we have it in, in Greek culture. I mean, it's, it's all over. Actually, I don't even want to get into it because I'll be listing all the different places that it is. It's all around the world. It's even the symbol that you may know of, of infinity. You see that above. Uh, if you look at the, the tarot, you see that above the magician on the magician card. You see that above his head. Uh, in Freemasonry, you also have it where it's it's centered around the compass. You know, um, it's all over. <laughs> it's it's all over. We have it in Voodoo. Um, it's 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 everywhere, right? So just that that the Nordic mythology, even of you know the serpent eating its own tail, right? Uh, so now and Quetzalcoatl. Some of the images of Quetzalcoatl also were of him. Uh, eating, eating his own tail. You know, that's now what you, you're dealing with the Aztec and, and the Toltec uh, communities. But um, I just said I wasn't going to listen. But there's a whole much more to list. So I didn't, don't worry. I, if you want to do some research, you'll find a bunch more. Because even the symbol of the yin and yang is actually that. As is, um, you know, like there's some symbols of the Kundalini where it shows it inside of the lotus and the snake is eating itself. So it, it, it's plenty of places to find it. You find it in Kemet. You know, you find it in um, Armenia. It's in Armenia, they use it to represent karma, the cycle of karma and stuff. The tree of life, you find it in, in Zoroastrianism. You know, it's all over. But anyway, so he sees the symbol. Now, here's the difference with this symbol and this book, right? It's two serpents. It's two serpents. It's a gold and I'll say tarnished, tarnished silver one. Right. Representing the masculine and the feminine right there on the cover. But um, when you see it here, like you have one snake eating the tail of another snake, but they're still connected and intertwined together. Right. Very important because it represents how things are infinitely balanced. And when you have the two, see, like when you have one one snake forming that circle or one mudfish. You know, of course, it represents that one individual regenerating itself or balancing itself or or experiencing its own karma. But then when you have the double Ouroboros or the double serpents, it represents the balance of your higher self and your lower self balancing each other out, but also continuing its story or continuing time through the ingestion of itself. It, it, it's, it's deep, but this isn't really about that. Maybe. But this is but it's when you devour your insides, you are creating a new outside, essentially. So um, 
you start to understand that the cycle of time is the cycle of reproducing and recreating yourself through your inner imagination or your inner environment. So you devour that inner imagination, you devour that inner imagine or that inner environment in order to reproduce yourself over and over again, which you're going to see the significance in this story. Right. But they had to do two snakes because, again, it's that higher and lower. Right. Um, but they called it the Orin, A-U-R-Y-N, the Orin. Orin means gold. Okay. When you see that word Orin, which so now we, as soon as we see Orin, we know it's gold. We know we have references to alchemy. Right. So there's a lot of like one thing, like I said, they crammed <laughs> a lot into this movie, which is cool. You know, it's cool. You know, um, you have so many traditions represented in this movie is ridiculous. Like, the, the German guy who did it, he actually, he, and he said it straight up. He said, it, you know, he studies the occultism heavy. He, he's, and he studied Aleister Crowley heavy, not for the movie, but that's just what he does. So all of these different philosophies he included into the movie. So you'll, you'll have this like deep psychology in it, alchemy, um, the great work of alchemy. You have represented Kabbalah's represented, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, Freemasonry is represented, Hinduism is represented like as you watch it and you break it down, you can see um, all of those things are, are certainly present. So anyway, so he steals the book. Long story short, the guy's like, yo, you can't get the book. The guy goes on a call. And he was like, I'll be right back. And he takes a newspaper and he covers the book with the newspaper and the newspaper said post. It looked like something said post 100, something like that. But obviously it was significant. He covers the book with the newspaper Right. Covering the esoteric with the exoteric. And when he goes to answer the call, somebody is asking him about an order for something. And he was like, oh, we don't have those, but we can get them. It'll run you about three hundred to three seventy five. Three hundred to three seventy five. That was the price. Now, this is a bookstore. Right. So you may be saying to yourself, what the heck would cost? You know, not to say that books don't cost that much, but obviously, if he's saying something like that in, in the movie, is significant. 300 to 375. Well, you factor those down. 300, you get the number three. 375, you get the number six. Put them together, you get the number nine. But even when you take them apart, they're both still factors of three. Three represents the rebel. Okay. So three, three is, three is the number for independence. Just like 13 is the number for independence. You, you'll have 12 apostles or 12 experiences that you have to go through. Um, and then that, that 13th one is when you, you actually experience, you know, freedom or, or not freedom. You, you actually, yeah, we say freedom, but you actually experience that freedom and that, and that reawake, reawakening through the 13. That's why the 13 is like such a significant number, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's such a significant number, but yeah, you know, um, so when you see that, you know, when you see that, like, you know, um, in terms of the story, when he was like, oh, it could be 300 or 375. And he's saying in the background while the guy's stealing what the kid is still in the book, you know, like, OK, they're saying that for a reason. You know, like I said, and it will factor you down to either three. Well, they both factor the three, but it's either that either that three or that six. And like I said, those are very divine numbers. A lot of people just think like, you know, even like I said, 13, they think 12 is like the most of divine because, you know, you have uh, 12 brothers of Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 kings of Israel, 12 prophets in the Old Testament, 12 signs of the Zodiac, 12 months in a year, 
um, 12 grades in school. You got the 12 step program, you know, um, 12 jurors, um, 12 inches in the foot, you know, things like that. But that is that is a, a code for certain things. But the 13 is when you break out of the cycle of the 12. You know, so that the 13 is actually really the, re- the rebel or, or the one who has now found freedom, just like the three is. Right. So we get a we get a clue from the Magi because I'm going to call the book owner a Magi. He was a Magi. We get a clue of who Bastion is and in all of this. Right. So. He then after that, he goes to he goes to school. Right. Now, of course, obviously, he's. He's late to school and um, there's a math test that's happening. And remember, he just got the whole you ain't been handing in your math homework, just that, 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 that. So he goes to the door. He sees the test. He's like, oh, test. He's like, no, nah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not doing this. You know, so what he does is he goes up into the attic of the school. He gets the key to the attic. He goes up top into the school. And of course, that represents um, your higher levels of knowing the higher levels of knowledge. Now, one of the things that you see heavy in this in this actual movie is the philosophy of the Cathars. And I'm not sure how familiar you are all with the with Catharism. But um and and Catharism is like it's it's I wouldn't say it's mystical, but you know they were you don't hear much about Catharism, which it was really strong in Germany, of course, because look at, you know, who did the movie, but because they were really persecuted by the, the Catholic Church, because their whole thing was that they believed that God was a dualistic being and that there was a like an evil God and then there was a good God. And the God of the Old Testament was the evil God and the God of the New Testament was the good God. And the God of the Old Testament, they syncretized with Satan. Right. And um, the whole thing was that. Humans were angels who had no sex, who came down to inside of human bodies to experience a sexuality, you know, and they were supposed to go through certain experiences in life and cleanse themselves of of their we'll just say their, their karma in order to now be resurrected or resolved to the good God. Right. Which they considered to be the first God, even though it was the God of the, the New Testament. You know, so um, there was this idea that kind of like, again, it's dualistic of deities that there's there's different places that you could go. And it, and it goes it goes even deeper in that, you know, they had good Christians and, and bad, bad Christians and, you know, things like that. But um obviously those ideas of karma and and reincarnation having to do it over and over again until you you make the right decisions and then you can go to the good god if you will um were diametrically opposed to what the catholic church was presenting at that time right um and then they also had different ideas about women in terms of like their independence you know, they allowed them to do holy ceremonies and things like that. So you see a lot of Catharisms inside of even this film. And you'll see as we go forward in terms of the, the place of, of women and even that, that Trinity aspect, there's, there's a lot of it. So, um, you know, you can see that that Catharistic influence. So, again, he goes up into the attic. 
you know, in order to now deal with these higher degrees. And if we were looking at it from a Masonic perspective, we could say that he ascended to like the 32nd degree. He hasn't gotten to the 33rd and 3rd degree yet, but um, <laughs> this is a 32nd degree experience. He's reached the top. He's at the attic. You know, I can no longer go any further on this plane. Right. And then that's where we where we get into some other stuff. So um, he starts reading the book in the attic. Right. I'm just going to try to get through it. Um let me do a time check. Where are we at? I don't know. We 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 far enough though. But um, you know, so okay, we're 40 minutes. Is that 40? Yeah. All right. So um, yeah, because I'm trying, I don't want to, you know, like I said, there's a lot here. I could just I could flow on, <laughs> on this one, you know, for a long time. But anyway, so he starts to read the book, and we're still in the beginning, like we're still like in the first five, ten minutes of the movie. So I'm going to try to speed up. But um, he reads the book. And he starts reading it. It takes him into obviously a mythological kind of fantasy world. And uh, we first encounter um, like it's like a it's like a rainforest type of environment. And we see essentially who's the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland riding on a on a what the, what he calls a racing snail. And long story short, um, there's some there's some interesting hand signals that are given. There's a there's a rock eater individual. Uh, we could just call him like a rock monster, rock giant. But he's not really a monster. He's good. He's a nice person. And everything. He eats rocks, and um, you know, he is the first one that tells us that there's a problem. You know, there's there's this thing that's called the nothing, and the nothing is devouring. It devoured his land, his people. You know, um. And he was talking about a lake where he used to be able to go and get the, the like best rocks to go eat. And then one of the people was like, um, you know, like a like like a hole was like he was like, oh, you know, the lake was devoured. And then one of the, one of the people was there was like, oh, you mean like a hole? He was like, no, a hole would be something. This is nothing. See, all of that was significant. So we're talking about going back to the abysmal void of creation is nothing at all no thing is there that's a that's a feminist feminine chaotic archetype or feminine chaotic energy so you know the 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 mad hatter energy who is kind of like an aristocrat aristocrat um he's riding a racing snail he says he's from the west and of course we know it's going to be a snail because the west represents water and it, we're going to we're going to look at this from a theosophical or from like a Masonic perspective, because that's that's the energy of the movie. Right. So when I say North, East, South, West, you might be used to me speaking about it from a Yoruba or or, or an Isese perspective or an Ifa perspective where I'm talking about the Oreo poem. But that's not those those directions aren't necessarily universal, because even when you get like into I Ching or what some of you call the I Ching, those directions are different. Right. So uh, the West is is water. We have the we have the the, the snail and, and the aristocrat and the aristocrat. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the, the cartoon aristocrats. Sorry. Um, and then we have uh, we have like a troll and he's riding a bat and he says he's from the south and the south we know represents fire. Right. And then the rock, the rock guy, he's like, well, I'm from the north. 
and th- that the north and, and the north is earth. So of course he beat the rock guys in the north, of course. And the, and the bat guys, like the little troll was like fire, fiery and excitable. And you, you know, you could tell he's, he's from that fire element. Um, but he mentions like, yeah, there's this thing, there's this nothing that's, that's devouring everything. Now he starts throwing up gang signs or, or hand symbols with his right hand. You know, if you look at that scene, you'll notice that he throws up two different signals, um, symbols, but one of which is that three finger, you know, like when he said, I didn't do it. He was like, yeah, the whole lake was swallowed up. And he said, yeah, he said, but I promise you it wasn't me. And he puts up the scout honor, um, hand signal. Now that, that gesture was very important. Like I said, they just, they just started throwing everything right in your face. It was right there. That's that, that right hand signal. And some people like say, oh, that's scouts honor. You know, they look at it like that. And, you know, with the scouts honor, um, that represents service to, uh, God service to others and, um, service to the earth, or sometimes it's service to God, service to your country, service to others. And, you know, to also, um, obey the law of, of the boy scouts or the girl scouts. Right. But if you believe that's where it came from, <laughs> then you, you, you're missing a lot. You know, uh, it certainly doesn't come from there. Um, that's an, those, those are esoteric symbols. And, you know, when you see that three finger and a hand like that, you have that in Celtic tradition, you have it in, um, Christianity because it represents that Trinity, you know, um, the father, the divine word and the power of the father, which is really the, the mother. Um, you also had it in ancient Kemet cause it represented the tongue, you know, um, you had it in Greek and, in, 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 in Grecian, uh, in, um, literature and whatnot. And each finger represented a different thing, you know, um, whether it be, um, the crescent or whether it be God or, you know, each one had, had a different meaning, meaning to it, you know, um, so when you see that three finger sign like that, you're, you're dealing with, with esoteric energy, um, right there. So he, cause he didn't have to throw that up, you know? Um, but again, so now we have that with the rock giant. He tells us about the nothing. Um, also, by the way, you saw that in, in, uh, ancient Rome as well. They used that to hell Caesar. And that was also used early on. Um, they used to do that salute when they did the pledge allegiance in class. Then later they changed it to put your hand over your heart. But before that you would take your right hand and you would do a three finger salute to the flag, with your arm totally extended, just like you would see the Nazis, but they stopped doing that after uh, world war two. Okay. Um, so anyway, so now we know the land that he's in is called Fantasia, right? Um, and, there's this energy called the nothing that's basically devouring Fantasia, right? So they're all on their way. It's almost like the Wiz going to see the, the wizard. They're all on their way to see who the, the empress, who is basically like um, the ruler, if you will, of that of that world. And of course, she's in the East. Of course. Where else would she be? Right. You know, because we already have them coming from the North, the South and the West. So the empress, who's the light of that world, uh, she lives in in the east. So, again, we have that symbolism of like a Masonic energy or even like of a sun energy, you know, rising in in the east. And in um, 
Theosophical tradition is the east is the element of air. You know, and air, of course, would be symbolic of of um, ether, right? So even when they go to the east and we start to see, she lives in a place called the Ivory Castles, Ivory Castle, which is very interesting because um, right by, whenever you see scenes of the Ivory Castle, you see a sun right behind it or a sun right next to it. So it gives you that idea again of the rising sun. Um, so they go to the, they go to the castle on top of it. You see three round spears. Pay attention to that. Now my, my copy, like I said, is blurry. It's super blurry and it's tiny. If you saw a tiny, my, my video, so when I blow it up, there's nothing there. You, you probably laugh, but you know, I might've downloaded it like on Napster. Or something like so, you know. I got it so long ago. It was like one of them type of sites where, like, you know, I don't even know they had. Yeah, they didn't even have HD out yet. You barely had SD. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's super small. But um, there might be some inscriptions. I feel like I remember there were on on those actual spears on the top. But I definitely know that you know you have that Holy Trinity uh, imagery of the three spears that are touching each other. And combined in, you know, um, typically those represent the first three spheres of the tree of life, which would be, you know, Kether, Chokma and Bina, Kether, Chokma and Bina. And um, or in Christianity would be the, 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 the father, the son, the Holy Ghost, but really the father, the mother and the son. And um, if you if you look like in that energy, you'll also see a, a lotus flower and that I mean, in that scenery you know, um, and a rose, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting energy that's right there. And of course it's symbolic of, of the Yoni, the Yoni coming together with the phallus. You'll see that though, when you see the imagery, the fact that it's a tower, it's an ivory tower, but then it's got these Yoni symbols on it as well. And we know that the, um, you know, the Empress is, of course, she's the same Empress that, that we have in tarot you know, representing that, that fertility, that womb, that femininity. And she's the one who runs uh, Fantasia for the most part. But also it's important to note that that symbol is the Cathar cross. So that's why, you know, when I spoke about Catharism, um, they have that trefoil, which is what they call the trefoil cross or the trefoil symbol, um, which is supposed to be symbolic of wood you know, of the element of wood, you know, but, um, and there's a whole nother thing with that too, because it, it takes you back to Osir and, and Baphomet and, and how the cross actually pours its elic elixir into the, the skull of, of Baphomet. It, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting, but, um, maybe another time, like I said, we, we, we already, we deep in where we at now time check. We 50 minutes in, right. And we're still in the beginning. We ain't even start the adventure yet. <laughs> so I'm not going to cover too much of that. I'm going to, but I, I wanted to just be, I wanted to give you a background of Bastion and, and like this world, this really, you know, fantastical world, if you will, before you, so you understand. So long story short, they find out, boom, the world is falling apart and they're going to see the Empress and they go to the ivory tower and the ivory tower, basically, they're there and they're like, listen, you know, um, the empress can't see you because she's sick. And we and we don't know why she's sick. We're not told anything. 
Now we kind of already know that the Empress is a is a is correlated with Bastian's mother who died. We kind of get a, a sense of that, but we have certain senses of that despair and that pain and that you know this this movie. We know it was for children. Well, it really wasn't for children. It was for children who would one day be adults. And it was it, it was really a movie of warnings. To be honest with you, you could tell it was a movie of warnings. But um, there's a lot of like dismal sim symbolism in this movie. Like, you know, there's a lot of like sad things that happen, you know, I mean, from the beginning, like, yeah, your mother's dead, but get over it, kid. You know, you, you get the math scores up like that's where we start. So, you know, there's there's a lot of rough things kind of to, to deal with in, in this particular flick. But um, very similar again to like Conan, like we're going to come right into the pain or even with 1984, where he steals the chocolate from his dying sister. You know, like, we're going to go right into the pain. Let's go. You know, so long story short, um, we get to the point where um, there's a hero that's being called for. His name is Atreo. And it says that Atreo is of the Plains people. And this is where it gets interesting, too, because we realize that Atreo is a First Nation individual. And in fact, the person who's doing all of the speaking for the uh, Oracle, Oracle hmm. for the Empress is actually Moses Gunn, right? Um, I don't think we're given his name in the movie, but I know him as Moses Gunn. He was any, any of you ever watched Good Times? You remember when um, after James died, Carl, um, who was Florida's new boyfriend, uh, that's Moses Gunn. You know, he talks. He's got a booming voice and you know, um, real serious kind of looking cat, but. He's the one who played um, this 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 mystical energy that spoke for the Empress. So long story short, they call for Atreo. Atreo comes. He's First Nation native. You know, these are the people who live on the plains and hunt the purple buffalo. There's a whole nother thing with that. But we're going to we're going to skip past it. Right. Um, and they basically like when he comes, he's like, no, we didn't ask for you, man. We asked for a warrior. And he's like, well, I'm the only Atreo of my people. But if you don't want me, I am out. So they're like, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Come back. Come back. Come back. Because, you know, it's a child. It's like we didn't know it was going to be a child. We thought it was going to be some big brolic warrior. Right. But of course, it's always a child. It's always an unlikely hero. But he's brave. He's like, man, I'll what what's you know what you need me to kill. So he. um they they say, OK, well, this is what you need to do to go on this thing. You can't go with any of your companions and you can't go with any of your weapons. So he's like, all right, I'll do it. So we know that, you know. He has nothing to guide him other than what they call the Orin, and they put it around his neck. The Orin is the Ouroboros that you saw on the cover of the book. OK, so it's that that again, that energy and that symbol of regeneration. But tracing ahead or skipping ahead it's the energy of him connecting his higher self with his lower self or his consciousness with his subconsciousness so in order for him to have an ultimate union with yah or the ultimate union with the creator he's got to do that by himself without his weapons without his armor or, or or anything this is why and i spoke about this on the sabbath call recently with our new members this is why when David went against Goliath, he didn't have any armor. He didn't need any. You see, because there's nothing that's going to separate me from my union with my creator. 
So that's why with a trail is like, now nah, you can't bring any of your weapons, none of that, but we'll give you this. So, you know, he separated. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. All right. So he goes off on his journey and we see a rainbow when he's leaving. Well, you know, the rainbow represents a covenant, right? Now he goes through, this is it's so sad. So freaking sad. He goes through this. He goes all around looking for, um, you know, look, looking for, uh, they told him that he had to go, you know, he, he's looking for like a solution basically. Um, and he travels all around and he ends up going through what's, what's called the swamps of sadness. Okay. Which is like, <laughs> that was a really, that was a really sad scene. You know, um, he goes through the swamps of sadness and what that represents is the collapsing of your reality, you know, and what happens, he's going through with his horse, Artak, and um, Artak gets caught up in the sadness of the environment and sinks and dies inside of the swamps. Right. So he's crying. Artak, no, no, no. It's so sad. But, um, you know, and in that moment, he's traveling through, but he starts to feel despair, too. And, you know, um, but we, 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 we won't get through that yet. So as he's traveling, um, he comes across this turtle, right? This, the great turtle. That's the one he had, who he needed to speak to. The turtle is called Morla. And Morla is considered to be the most ancient and most wisest being on all of Fantasia. Now, of course, it's a turtle because Atreyu is First Nation. So how could you have a First Nation individual in your movie and not have a reference to Turtle Island? So that's so we know why they use the turtle. OK. And then there's other symbology with the turtle turtle, of course, holding up the world. Um, and it's that that interchange in that conversation with Morla was very interesting. Morla was allergic to youth, but it was very interesting. But we won't you know, Morla was like the, the bookstore keeper. Uh, the, the the bookstore owner. That was the correlation between those two. I know everything, but I'm not going to tell you everything. You're going to have to, you're going to have to show me your cleverness in order to get it. And like he said, when Bastian came in the story, he's like, I don't like children. You see, and Morlock kept sneezing. And Morlock was like, I'm allergic to children. So it was that, that wiseness, that, that wise wit energy. All right. But now, after after uh, Morla tells him, like, you need to go to the Southern Oracle to um, find out what's happening, um, Atreyu's like, well, how far is that? And he's like, yo, Morla's like, it's 10,000 miles away. So Atreyu's like, I can't get there. There's no way I can get there. So now, because things seem dismal, he begins to sink into despair, Right. He leaves Morla because Morla goes back, descends back into her space. And um, Atreo like is feeling despair. So what happens is Atreo now starts to sink into the swamps. Okay. Atreo begins to sink into the swamp. So again, long story short, um, he sinks and he almost right when he's about to go under. And, and we also have a new, villain energy uh called the uh who is he the gamork and it was basically this big gigantic wolf 
right? And he was hunting a trail. He was tracking him, you know, the Gamork. And um, right when the Gamork is about to pounce on him, we have what's called a luck dragon. And it's kind of like this goofy looking dog. It's like half dog, half dragon. Uh, but the luck dragon flies from the skies. His name is Falcor. And he comes and he saves Atreo. Now, this was like real deep because this was like symbology of like when we get to our lowest point in life and we feel like there's no hope or our inner life or our inner self has kind of is, is, is unseeable by us. It will always be our higher awareness, or our higher self that will come to save us. So we find out now that Falcor represents the higher self. Okay, it's still it's still us, but it's the higher self. So Falcor grabs him, brings him up in the air. He's a, he's called what's called a luck dragon. Flies him away, and Gamork is unable to um, unable to get him. Right. So uh, there's a lot. There's a lot even in that in that scene, you know. Um, but for the sake of time, we'll just we, we'll keep it moving, right? But again, you know, a trail sinking and the sadness it correlates with bastian's grief that he and and the disappointment that he even has and and his his father you know because the nothing that surrounds him and is attacking them that really is synonymous with hopelessness and not having any creativity not having any any um any imagination uh it's an expression of apathy you know so anyway so now Falcor, who's supposed to be a dragon, um, and of course, you know, in in um like in Chinese culture, the dragon is luck. Um and dragons are all over the place. Like, you know, when you study the dragon energy, like it's not just a Chinese thing, some people think, but you got dragons in so many different cultures. But um I won't get into Falcor too much because that's not really what this is about. But anyway, so he wakes up in the arms of Falcor. He doesn't know Falcor though. Falcor just came out of nowhere. Falcor is a luck dragon. Like he just brought him good luck. And what happens is, um, he's like cuddled and held by Falcor and his wounds are, are healed at the same time. And they're in outer space basically at that point. Right. So Falcor is almost like a higher self, but like a father. In that moment, very significant for you religious people, very significant. So he's like Falcor is like his higher self, but like his father at the same time. All right. So basically, we see the lower self, a trail wrapped into the fold of the higher self, Falcor. And, you know, like he wakes up, he's scared of Falcor at first. And Falcor is like, no, I like children. You're OK. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't eat you. Anything like that, you know, um, and <laughs> so what happens was what happens now is um, he tells Falcor, like, listen, I'm trying to get to the Southern Oracle and it's and it's super far away. Like, you know, I'm, I'll never make it. And Falcor is like, well, it's not as far as you think. I think you can you can make it. And he tells him, Atreo's like, listen, it's 10,000 miles away. 
And Falcor says, no, I actually flew, flew you. He's like, what? You flew me to the Southern Oracle? He says, no, I didn't fly you to all the way to the Southern Oracle. He says, I flew you 9,891 of the 10,000 miles. Very significant. 9,891. Okay, so now when you add, because remember, every number that's given to you it's, it's for a reason. You know, it's, it's, it's for a reason. So when he says 9,891, you add those together, you get the number nine, right? The number nine, like I said, it was like they were in outer space. The number nine is, is symbolic of the moon. And if you look at an image of Falcor and then look at where they were, you'll feel like it's like they, like it was moon energy, like they were on the moon, uh, which is, of course, is a symbol for the subconscious mind. Right. Which is in our Kabbalistic system, which would be your sword. OK, your sword. When now all that has been created has been completed. That's at your sword. Now, why didn't he take them 10,000 miles? Because Atreyo has to do it for himself. So he left. He left the rest of the journeys. Like, you know, you got to do that. The, the last part for yourself. Right. So. um Basically, he's like, but you're not alone right now. He's like, because he brought him to two gnomes. Now, this was another pivotal part of the story. These two gnomes, right? The two gnomes were um, Engiwuk and Ergil. Engiwuk and Ergil. Very, um, very significant in, in, in the whole story. Because Engiwuk was an alchemist. And... Um, you know, Urgil Ur was what he kept calling a witch. She was a witch. So in this, you had the joining of mysticism and science. That's what those two represented. It was the polarity between the two. And they were always kind of like at each other's throats. You know, uh, he just kept calling her witch, witch, witch. You know, and he was doing that to make sure we knew that. She was a, she was a, you know, a magician. She was, she was a witch. And, um, of course he, he being the scientist, right? So it was very important because in many circles, um, it's kind of taught that the esoteric can't live with the exoteric. Okay. So the exoteric would be like your, your, your chemistry or, or your science and even your, your exploration of philosophy and your esoteric would be your occult and your magic and your spirituality. And there's an idea that the two are, are opposing forces, but those who know better know that they're, the two are linked together and you can't intelligently approach one without having a, an appreciation for the other. You see, so there was a, there was a conjoining of the two. It, it was, I really liked how they actually did that, to be honest with you in the movie, because it also showed the masculine and feminine and it showed even the representation of those two, like pretty much what each one would be. Yeah. Most likely the woman would be more into the occult and more into the, the spirituality and the masculine represents more of the alchemy of the science of, and, and of the philosophy and, and things like that. And they're both equally powerful, you know, and should be equally utilized. So they brought these two concepts together in these two gnomes. And, you know, it's also important to realize that um, gnomes, like we look at them now, like they like funny little creatures or whatever. But um, 
you know, in this, they they represent the union of 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 body and soul, or the union of male and and fe- female. You know, so um, they're now at at the at the Southern Oracle, and they live there, right? And and it was a very interesting thing that Ergil said, you know, um, to Atreo, like when she was giving him some more potion, and and she was like, "How do you feel?" And he was like, "I'm I'm all right. I'm better." And he and and then she said, "Oh." Isn't that interesting that the patient is telling the doctor how they are, right? Very interesting when you think about jegnership, you know, and people think that they can see the whole and the full of themselves, you know, and they really can't. And that's what this whole part of the journey was about, really, was now Atreo was going to have to face himself and he was getting ready to face a very hard reality, right? So one of the things that Ergil also says is that it has to hurt if it's to heal, when he's like, well, I feel all right, I'm, I'm cool. If it's to heal, it has to hurt. And you hold that one. <laughs> you hold that one. But she she dropped a, a bomb on that one. That was a gem. It has to hurt if it's going to heal. Um, so we see we see Ingiwook. He's drawing in a book and um, it's two sphinxes or nebhus. We'll, call, we'll say sphinxes for now. Um, and. You know, of course, it's the same sphinxes that you would have like at Delphi and at many other places and the same cherubims that you would have protecting the garden and stuff like that. The sphinx is not a an, uh, an idea that's that's exclusive to ancient Kemet. They're all over the place in different forms. Right. Um, but he's drawing these sphinxes and and his book. And, um, you know, and, and Ingiwok, Ingiwok is also an interesting character. Just look at his name. It sounds like energy work. Because his name is E-N-G-Y-W-O-O-K, Ingiwook, Energy Work, or, or Energy Wook. But anyway, that's just a little side theory, may or may not be. Don't worry about it. So anyway, long story short, I know I keep saying that, and we're probably well over an hour in. <laughs> uh, yeah, hour and nine minutes. We're going to get there, though, actually. We're almost, I'm, I'm, I'm going to close it out in a minute, because I'm going to leave a lot out <laughs> on purpose. So anyway. So he basically tells him about the about the two oracles, right? The two cherubins that he has to go through. The first one, you have to have self-confidence and be sure of yourself in order to get through it. If not, they open up their up their eyes and they blast you with these with these rays and they kill you, right? Um and then the second one forces you to meet and see your your true self so while they're there this knight in all this armor tries to go through the first one and ends up getting blasted and ingiwook is like yeah it doesn't matter the armor you know that doesn't make a difference you know um you have to be because when he's going he's like let's see how sure he is of himself you see um so we kind of see right there like yeah the armor was just a covering you really don't know yourself the whole thing is knowing yourself you know um so, again, we have when you look at the cherubins, which is interesting, you know, they're very similar to like what you see at the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they're, they're two cherubs with um, two large wings in, a, in the shape of a crescent moon. Right. Um, so basically, Atreo, he gets through the first one. I won't go through the whole climatic scene, whatever. You can watch that yourself. He runs down there, gets through the first one. Now it's time for him to go through the second one. Right. And um, he says, you know, 
like the second one is where you have to face yourself. That next cherub passive passageway is the magic mirror. He goes through a first. He goes through a hot desert to get through the first cherubs. Now he's going through a snowstorm. Also very significant. Right. So he gets through the second one and uh, well, he gets to the first one. He goes to the magic mirror. And the magic mirror, like Ingiwook is like, no, you don't understand how hard it is. Most people, when they see them, their true selves, they, they run away screaming. Mm. Look at that one. How many times you heard me say that? <laughs> people don't really want to look at themselves. They have all these puffed up ideas about who and what they are, but they really don't want the truth to themselves. When you give it to them, they, they start to attack you. Essentially, they attack you for telling them the truth of what they're put, just putting a mirror up in front of their face. You don't even have to tell them anything. Just ask them a couple of questions and and they'll see the worst aspects of themselves. And sometimes they may see themselves in the world as as these deified angels. And when you hold up the mirror, they see their their truth. They have the true personality of a demon and they have to accept that part of themselves and merge with it in order to grow beyond the trap of the duality. Right. So he goes to the second one and he goes to that mirror and he sees that um, he is Bastion and Bastion is him. So now we get the first interaction between these two worlds and in a in a conscious sense. Right. Which it, it it's really deep in that sense, because. um, Well, it gets deeper. <laughs> You know, it, it it gets deeper, but, you know, he looks in the mirror and he sees Bastion and Bastion sees him. OK, um, so we start to see that in order for this journey truly to take place in an effective way, Atreo. Though he represents um, a conscious observer of the subconscious which is basically in the astral planes, he's in the astral planes, he's separated from Bastion, his other self. And that's symbolic of like, you know, sometimes you have a dream and the dream is crazy and you're like, where the heck did that come from? You know, and it just doesn't make any sense to you. That's when your astral realms are, are completely unlinked from your conscious mind. So there's no, you have no control over what you're dreaming or what you're fantasizing and all these different things. So when he's willing to accept, when Bastion sees him and he sees Bastion, there's now a linkage between the observer and the observed or the conscious and the subconscious. And now they, you know, control can finally be gained going forward. Right. But even at this moment, Bastion is still like, nah, like he takes the book and he throws it away. He's like, this is too much. That's what he says. This is too much, <laughs> you know. Um, but anyway, so he continues forward, of course. And again, like I said, that that mirroring um, is very important because it gives a trail an opportunity to see his true self. You know, and that's what Ingiwak was so terrified for him because he was saying that, you know, um, he'll be terrified to see that. And sometimes you see what's what's held prisoner inside of you or what's inside of the cavern of your mind, because even the mirror itself is kind of inside of inside of a cavern. And we see now in this moment that Bastion is the higher being of, of Fantasia. You know, he's actually the God of, of Fantasia. He's what 
forms Fantasia as the Demiurge. You know, so even as he's reading about a trail, he's bringing a trail's experiences into it, into existence. Right. So he sees that he comes out of that. Boom. Um, he basically leaves with Falcor and they're traveling um, because the last Oracle tells him that you have to go to the edge of Fantasia. And the Empress, basically, she needs a new a new name. And he's like, well, I'll just give him a name. He's like, no, you need a human needs to, to give a human needs to give uh, the Empress the name. And he's like, well, I'll find a, a human. He was like, you'll find. And so the Oracle tells him you'll find a, a human at the edge of Fantasia. Right. So they go out traveling him and Falcor. And he's asking Falcor, do you know where the edge is? And he's like, nah, I don't know, but we'll find it. Don't worry about it. And he's like, how do you know? Luck. You know, I'm a luck dragon. We'll, we'll, we'll get, don't worry about it. It'll work out. So as they're going, they go over or they try to cross the sea of possibilities. And when it's crossing the sea of possibilities, a trail falls. They, 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 they're in a storm and a trail falls off of Falcor and he lands on a beach at the edge of the sea of possibilities. And he sees that his necklace, the Orin, is gone. Right. And Falcor is searching for him. He's searching for Falcor. Now, the sea of possibilities is a deep place because it represents the abyss. You know, now the abyss on the tree of life is represented by Bina or it's that that consciousness of everything or the possibility of everything. The island would be would be probably the crown. It would be Kether. Or it could even be Chokma, but you know, it's where you have to pass through your your tests that lie inside the abyss in order to get rid of your ego. And once you can get rid of your ego, you can merge with everything because now you've there's no fear and and you've reformed yourself at this point so now um that has to be done without the aid of the higher self this is why falcor was he he, he fell off of falcor because falcor can't help him do this he has to do this himself right this is and so it's such a very significant thing you know a lot of times uh you hear me talk about even like education over initiation you have to go through a journey and through your tests yourself. People are always trying to pull down these different energies and these different archetypes and this and that. And they never evolve. They never grow. That's why you have so many Ianifas, so many Babalaos, so many priests, so many priestesses that are so trapped in ego because they haven't put their hand to the plow themselves. You see, they're constantly calling on this and calling on that and calling on that. And there's no personal growth, no personal development. All right. So this is a trails time now to f finally face another truth and dissolve ego, you know, and this is where it gets, it gets really deep, really, honestly, it gets really deep because in this moment now he ends up in, in a, it's always a cave, right? Just like Conan going into the cave. Um, he, he ends up in a cave and just like where Conan went into the cave and came upon the throne of, of the king when he was being chased by the world or by the wolves. Right. We got the wolf again. Um, he finds himself when he gets that sword. He's like, oh, all right. I got it. And the sword had runes written into it, too. 
right? Which I didn't even cover because I was trying to get through the, the segment. But um, so, yeah, so Atreo, now he finds his cave. This is where it gets really cool. So inside of the cave, um, this is where he's going to get his know thyself kind of lesson, if you will. He's going to get his know thyself. He sees these cave paintings inside of the cave, right? And um, what he's looking at is his own story, right? So he's he's looking at, at the paintings on the wall, and he's like, wait a minute, that's me with, with Artak in the swamp. That's this one. That's me with Falcor, you know, and he's seeing that um, everything that he's kind of been experiencing as something that's been written out. Now, some could say that it was being written out while he was doing it, whatever, but that's not what it is. What it is is that, again, remember, it's the dispelling of ego. It's the dispelling of ego. So when he's looking at those cave paintings, he's seeing the past and he's also seeing his present. So he's actually looking at the Akashic records. You see, he's looking at the Akashic records because he also sees the future when he sees Gamork, which hiding in the cave. But we'll, we'll get to that. Right. So essentially what's happening in that moment, he has to face the fact that he's an illusion. He's a figment of someone's imagination. He's something that was just written on the wall. Okay. He's something that was, he's a shadow. He's a shadow that someone has cast. We find out in, in that moment that where the Empress is the moon, Bastion is the sun. And all of these figures and these energies that are inside of Fantasia are shadows that he has cast. That's all. It's so much, so many different paths we can go down with this, but we're like, I don't, I don't want to be talking for five hours. That by itself, the shadows that you cast create new worlds, right? So the understanding there is that he's looking at this, this story that's being told on this wall. Now, a story, whether you're reading it or you're telling it, is a very mystical and metaphysical experience. So like when he looked at the book, for instance, Bastion, when he looked at the, um, the book, The NeverEnding Story, it was closed, right? So on that, that jacket and on that cover, there's, there's a beginning and there's an end. But inside, there's infinite possibility. Now, why is there infinite possibility? Because once you read something, it unlocks your imagination. And when the imagination is unlocked and it can be shared over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, um, you can create different directions and different things. And, you know, um, it, it goes beyond the beginning of the story. It goes beyond the end of the story. When you read something that says once upon a time, you might think about, well, well what was happening before that time? And then after the, the, the beautiful ending, what happened after that? So your imagination keeps the cycle going like like the the serpent eating its own its own tail. The world can be recreated over and over and over and it, and it continues in many different directions. And that happens through you, through your active activity of actually reading. So as Bastion is reading, he is creating every single element and every single thing. And every single person inside of 
of Fantasia. He's actually the, the, the material of creation. His, his intellect becomes the, what we call the philosopher's stone, where all creation begins to spring from it. Okay. So when we're living the story, we're living so many lives because we're creating so many lives. Just like when we go through a process of healing, you know, we go through a process of learning how to, how to heal the world forever. Because we're intricately linked into those things. So when Atreo looks at these paintings, he realizes I'm not real. Right. He doesn't say it in the movie or anything like that, but that's what it is. That's what we're being told. Oh, so. And then we get more of that later. Right. So he comes out of the, he, when he looks at the image of, of Gamork in one of the writings, he's like, what the heck? It's a it's a wolf. And then right at that moment, he sees Gamora. So, so again, the writings were telling us the future. So we start to see like, this is a story that's been told a bunch of times, but how could this story have been told a bunch of times when Bastian is reading the story and it's manifesting. So we start to realize that Bastian's story ain't new. And maybe somebody's reading a book that's actually Bastian. Maybe Bastian like a trail is a figment of someone's imagination. We'll get to that later, right? And it's just a story like any other story that you just keep reading over and over because you enjoy it or whatever, or, or it creates something in you. So he sees Gamork. We're coming down to, we're going to make it the end. <laughs> he sees Gamork and um, they start to have a conversation. Gamork is like, if you come any close, I'm going to rip you to shreds. And, and Atreo's like, who are you? And he says, I'm Gamork. And you, whoever you are, you can have the honor of being my last victim. So now Atreo, now like the, the, the warrior comes. He's like, listen, I'm not going to die easily. I'm a warrior. So Gamork's like, huh, if you're a warrior, go fight the nothing. And then the trail's like, I can't, I can't get beyond the boundaries, the boundaries of Fantasia. Cause maybe he, he had to go to the boundaries to, to see a human. And Gamork laughs at him. And he, and trail's like, what you laughing at? And, and, and Gamork is like, Fantasia has no boundaries, fool. Well, he didn't call him a fool, but you know, I'm throwing my little accents in there. And the trail's like, that's not true. You're lying. So then Gamork gives him the wisdom. He's like, you foolish boy. He was like, um, you don't know anything about Fantasia, do you? Like, you don't know anything about the world you live in. And he says, Fantasia is the world of human fantasy. Every single part of it, every being, you know, is, 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 uh, it's, it is a piece of the dreams and hopes of mankind. So it has no boundaries. So then the trail's like, then if that's the case, why is it dying? And, and Gomorrah is like, because people have begun to lose their hopes and they're forgetting their dreams. You see, so now the nothing is growing stronger. So Trail's like, what's the nothing? And then Gamork tells him it's the emptiness that's left. It's it's despair destroying this world. And then he says, and I've been trying to help it. And then the Trail's like, well, why are you trying to help it? And he says, because people have who have no hopes are easy to control. And whoever has the control has the power. So in the trail, like you see the look on his face, like he's suspicious. He was like, who are you really? And Gamork says, I'm the servant of the power behind 
the nothing. I was sent to kill the only one who could have stopped the nothing. But I lost him in the swamps of sadness. His name was a trail. And when he says his name, like the ground shakes like a, like a little earthquake and a trail falls down and he grabs this knife. Right. Well, it's not a knife. It's a piece of uh, stone that looks like a knife, like it, it's a shard. And he and he's like, listen, if we're going to die anyway, I'd rather die fighting. He's like, come for me. He said, I'm I'm a trail. And right at that moment, Gamork lunges out at him. You know, and it wasn't really no no fight. I guess, you know, half a children's movie, so they couldn't show too much. It wasn't like Conan, you know. So basically, Gamork, we, we, we see the next scene, and Gamork is on top of a trail. A trail has a cut on, you know, like on his chest, but Gamork has, like, you can see that trail stabbed him with the knife. He's dead, right? So through this exchange, we see that the nothing is actually just a tool. The nothing is not the actual problem. It's not the villain. It's a power that's used to control humans. You know, the shutting down of imagination, which is what they do to children. You see, that's what I said in the beginning of all this. It's a children's story, but it's kind of not a children's story. It's a children's warning and how they should not develop when they grow up. You see, so. We have we in, in this whole story, we never really get to see who the villain is. Just like when we talk about, you know, they getting ready to do it. We talk about the Illuminati. They're going to do this. They're going. We never get to really meet them, but we see their tools. We know that they're deadly, but we don't really see them like we get to meet Gamork. But we realize he works for the thing behind the nothing. But we never meet the thing behind nothing but we just know that they want to control humans and they and they're able to use this destructive force that comes through the shutting down of human imagination right so it's very interesting because it's like it's a lesson that we're given there like to never give up on your creativity never give up on the things that transform from belief to, to knowing you know but never give up on that that side of of the brain right so after he kills Gamora, whoop de woo, him and um he he finds Falcor again. Um they go up and, and Falcor had went underwater and found the Orin, by the way, before all of this. Um when he was looking for a trail. Long story short, he sees the Empress. Very, very deep scene too, when he finally uh meets the Empress because he goes up in there and he's and, and she's like she tells him everything that needs to happen. Like, yeah, we need a human to name me and this and that. And he's like, wait a minute. And and he was like, you knew that this whole time? He was like, so my, I, my horse died and all these things happened and you knew this the whole time? And she was like, yeah, but, I, but you had to go through the experience. Chief, why don't you just tell me the answer? Chief, come on, why are you being so difficult? Now, the Empress represents Sophia. She's wisdom. She's Sophocles. Okay. That's not her name, but that's who she is. Right. And really that ivory tower is really the Yoni. If you look at her chambers and everything, it's, it's, it's a Yoni. It's a womb. Right. So when a trail goes into it, it's, it's just, it's symb It's a sex thing. Now, of course, it's, it's supposed to be like a children's movie, but you got to be able to read between the lines. It's sex. You know, even like that bed or thing that she's sitting on, which, which looks like a lotus flower. It's it's a yoni, 
you know, um, and she's that that mother of earth in that sense. And, you know, she's the childlike emperor. She's a child, you know, just just like them. She's a child. And of course, her being a child, it, it represents that purity. You know, um, you know, it was. A, and let me say, there's another scene that I, I thought was cool. Um, going back to the gnomes, going back to Ingiwook and Ergil, there was a scene when. Um, Atreo asked um, Wook, he's like, listen, he, you know, they were talking about going up um, to the Oracle and things like that. And then he asked Wook, he says, have you ever been to the Southern Oracle? And was like, what do you think? He said, well, I work scientifically, meaning like, no, nah, I ain't never been there. So is it, that was just like a very cool thing, I thought, in terms of like not going through your own process, the little little thing they threw in there, you know, like, yeah, the scientists will sit there and theorize all day, but do they do they actually have the practical? And you'll see it, it just the way that Atreo rushed into the into the gates of the cherubs. You get a sense from right there that like, yeah, he's not into all that process. He's young. Let's do it. Right. So. Anyway, at this point, he's in the ivory tower. Everything is falling apart. Like he's saying that the empress is like, I need this child to give me my name or we're going to die. Like everything is going to be lost. And Bastion's reading this and he's like, what? He's like, this can't be real. This cannot be happening. Like they're talking about me. How could they know me? And then the Empress is saying everything, just like we're a part of his story. He's a part of someone else's story. You see, she says it in that moment. And she's saying that, um, you know, like he has to believe. So every time he's like, nah, nah. And he's like, no, come on, Bastion, keep your feet on the ground, keep, which is what his father told him earlier. Right. So every time he's saying that their world is getting another hit, because at this point, they're floating in our outer space. The world has been destroyed. They're floating in outer space and they're just on the ivory, the ivory tower, which is now also falling apart. You know, so like I said, um, there's a connection that needs to happen between the astral plane individual, a trail. And the three dimensional plane individual of Bastion. But like I said, in that moment that we realize that Bastion is really God. So at the last minute, um, Bastion goes to the window. He calls out a name for his for his for the Empress, which was actually the name of his mother. And the name is Moonchild. Very significant for any of you who study Alistair Crawley. You'll see Moonchild is, is, is a is a concept in there right so um when he does that like we see nothingness right and then the screen is dark and then we hear bastion say why is it so dark and moonchild or the empress says in the beginning it's always dark you see now in that moment bastion becomes a 33rd and a third degree magi because he is now claim the power and the knowledge of all that he's of all the universe. You see, he can continue to let Fantasia exist in, in oblivion, or he can, he can recreate it through his imagination and through his creativity and through his love and through his soul, you know, or he can, or, or he can create another world reality. Right. So, in that moment, you know, when there's that implosion and everything goes dark 
um, he becomes now he re or he realizes I'm the God of this world. So when he speaks to the Empress or, or the Sophocles after he names her, he names her as his higher self. And he's penetrated. He, really, he's when when they're together, he's now in the throne room, meaning that he's penetrated the vagina. You see, and there's one little grain of light that she's holding in, in her hand. And he's like, what's that? And she's like, it's a grain of sand. This is all that's left of Fantasia. So now we're going back to the beginning of creation. You see, where all things are dark. We're, we're back at we're back at the um the abyss. And, you know, the Empress or Moonchild now says that, you know, you can make a whole new world if you make a wish. Because she's she gives him she puts the grain of sand in his hands. You see, this is all a, a sexual interplay. This is part of the science of mating. <laughs> this is the science of mating. It's where you got to pick someone who. Is on level. You got an empress who's who's the ruler of an entire world. And then you got Bastion, who's a god. Yeah, he's little boy who's read 186 books, who's a 33rd and third degree Mason. This is a proper mating. I'd say this is a proper mating, right? So he now has the raw material of creation, which is the feminine principle, and he can imprint his order upon it. So she tells, so now he's bringing order out of chaos. So she tells him, like, he's like, how many wishes do I get? He said, she was like, as many as you want. So basically, the more he wishes, the more the, the, the world is created back out, you see. And again, that, that moon child empress, which is his mother's name, is that feminine Sophia archetype um, or wisdom archetype. Um, it's really important because you see when you start again, when you understand the people who made the movie, you know, Ende, uh, this guy's last name, um, you start to see what they're pulling from and why they're using this idea of the soul of the world. You know, and, and where that that really comes from and that virgin empress, the virgin empress, Sophia, you know, who's really it's a reference to Venus or what what they may have called Aphrodite. And that's why Atreo goes into the chamber at the end, you know, and then when you look at her, she's like got all white and light around her, which is that it's that alchemical um, representation of purity. She has a, a, a crown which has these pearls at the uh, first eye, you know, representing that idea and, and symbolizing that she is that that higher self. And, it, and it's the again, the union of male and female. So that glowing grain of sand of life is, is life. And it's it's the it's the now the complete union of the conscious and the subconscious and alchem and, and alchemy. We call that the great work. So when she's like in the beginning, there was darkness. That's Genesis. That's the book of Genesis from the Torah, you know, and then she gives that grain of light to Bastion, you see. So what this is representing is like now the God is awakened. You know, you, you have that that, you know, when he re when he awakes now, he's recreating reality after the implosion through his own memory of reality and through his own vision of 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 reality and this is the crowning of Tiferoth to Kether. We I'm keeping it in Kabbalah for you. From Kifer, from from Tiferoth to Kether. This is the crowning of that. So he rebuilds Fantasia 
with an unlimited amount of wishes from his own mind. And now Bastion has become the magician. He controls the elements. He's the controller of reality and he can bring what's in his subconscious into the conscious world. Now we know that because then he later takes, um, uh, Falcor into the quote unquote third dimensional world and he chases those bullies down who originally chased him, you know? So the act of his imagination is a response to the despair of the nothing. And what that imagination represents multiplicity, whereas the nothing or the abyss going back to the beginning of, of things represents singularity. So the nothing is not really an evil force. It's a chaotic, destructive force, but it brings everything back to a one. Whereas your imagination brings everything back to the multiple, you see. So. There's a form of truth. And the one and, and, and the nothingness, but Bastion chooses, he could either leave it there. Like, all right, well, screw Fantasia, y'all done. Or he can, he can choose to now move forward with creation, which he does with that grain of sand. He recreates the world. Okay. So again, there's so much I left out and I was, we're like, what, an hour and a half in something like that, <laughs> you know, um, you know, tying it back into the other works, you see the aggressive campaign present to shut down the thinking and the imagination of children. You got that in 1984 with the thought police and thought crime and new speak and changing the way we speak. Then we get that in Conan where we, we get even the introduction of certain sexual perversion. We get the introduction of. Um, just working and laboring and, and toiling for senseless reasons. Like he said at the end, 20 years of senseless combat, you know, and, and, and we start to understand through these things that there is a, like, again, what is that energy that exists be, be behind the nothing? Or, um, again, when we look at like Bastion's father and he's like, you got to get your head out the clouds and this and that. Well, who gave, his father's his father, that idea, you see. And and I would say also, let me just put a little side note. When Conan says 20 years of senseless combat because of his accent, I don't have the transcript for the movie. I, I could just download it, but I was never sure or just look at the subtitles. I was never sure if he said cumber or combat, because when he says it, it sounds like cumber and cumber means like a blockage, you know, or a burden. So he could have been saying cumber. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna throw that little side thing in there. I, I'm not sure if it's cumber or um, combat. In fact, cumber is a, is a character on on Dragon Ball, or you know. But anyway, so like I was saying, so you see that there's this campaign to to change to disconnect the subconscious from the conscious, and to create this reality where perversion. Is not only introduced, but perversion becomes um, the. It becomes almost through militaristic campaign, it becomes a tool that's used at the at the whim of like in 1984, the inner party or in Conan, Thalsa Doom or in uh, the never ending story, the perversion when you're molesting the imagination, the creativity of a child. You know, this is used by like that. Like, that's why he skipped out on, on math class when he saw the test. 
He didn't go because he chose the esoteric over the exoteric or he chose um, the esoteric over logic. He's like, ah, I'm, I'm not going to math class because he, you know, I would rather throw the, the left brain aside or the logical aside because it's limited. And I'd rather go to the more creative, expansive, un, un, unlimited thought of the right brain. You see, so that's why when he skipped, he went to the attic, like I'm going up above all of this. And that's what all all seekers of truth and all initiates need to do at some point. You have to abandon it. it that's the, the hermetics. You know, you have to to be a hermit. You have to abandon the world. Now, I know hermetics comes from from Hermes Trismegistus, but think about the hermit card, even in Tarot. It's that retreating from the world in order to progress your studies and to learn what it is that you're supposed to learn. You see, so that's what he did when he when he stepped away and was like, I ain't going to math class. And it's a test. You know, he abandoned the logical for the unlimited. You know, and of course, there has to be a marriage between the two. And that's what he learned, which finally allowed him to be the 33rd and, and the third. And the same thing Conan learned. Like, yeah, I'm a barbarian and I'm, I'm out here on my own. But, you know, at the same time, there comes a time for strategy. So that's what he learned at, at the end of, of, of that film. Like, it's not just about the straightforward brute force. Let me put this this thief he put the, the stripes on the thief stripes and they're using strategy and all these different things in order to defeat his energy, his enemy. He learned how to use that feminine creativity with the brute force and logic and strength of, of his masculinity, you know, and, and that's what what in the movie 1984, the book 1984, what Big Brother does with all its might to keep from ever happening. The feminine coming together with the masculine. So. Where you have it even in this movie where you have the childlike empress and then you have a trail slash bastion, the fortress coming together or that which fortifies the fortress, the fortress and coming together now. And, you know, they 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 sterilize. I don't want to say sterilized it, but they, you know, they made it appropriate for children. But it was a sexual act of them coming together, you know. So you have, again, this campaign to keep that from ever happening. And that's where the new speak comes in, where you have like I put up a post recently on on Instagram where I said, anytime you want to shut someone down, you just put phobia or phobic behind them or behind what they're talking about. You, you know, that's a form of new speak where everything is phobia now, you know, transphobia, a homophobia, fat phobia. And you know that the word makes no sense. You know that. A phobia is an is an irrational fear. So because I disagree with something, it doesn't mean that I'm afraid of it. You see. Maybe I'm afraid to have it enter into my life because it's not supposed to be there. Just like I don't want poison in my life doesn't mean that I'm afraid of poison. But if you try to force it into me, I'm afraid of you who are trying to force it into me. Because that's not what's supposed to happen. But phobia has nothing to do with me saying, well, that's unrighteous. And for me, this is righteous. Phobia shouldn't even come in, in, in a conversation. You see, and you know it when you say it, that I'm saying something that makes no sense. You know it, but you say it anyway. You see, because you've been perverted into that. So it's just like when Sebastian or Bastian's father said, you're drawing horses. And he said, unicorns. He's like, oh, never mind, Dad. 
Like, you wouldn't even understand. I'm not going to go back and forth with you, but I'm not going to have you force this idea on me of what I'm not saying. You see? So, that concludes our three-segment series. Um, 1984 Conan, Never Ending Story. It's one I might throw in for a bonus. I'll see. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> but, because uh, I'm, I'm cutting so much out. And he's, you know, if I, if I did these as like, you know, more in depth, um, study, I'd have to turn this into a class. I, you know, I wouldn't do this for free. You know, I, this is a lot already. This is over what, this is about uh, six hours, um, between all three of them. Well, let's say five to six hours of information. So, but, um, willfully you enjoyed it. And for some of you, maybe it took you back to your childhood. Maybe that was, that was it. <laughs> maybe that was enough to, to reignite. Uh, some of your own uh, imagination and, and to experience the the the, the uh, linkage between alchemy and spirituality and Christianity and death and life and uh, mysticism and Kabbalah. And, you know, um, we had also had some Islamic influences in, in, in really all three of the, the films. I didn't even get into that as much, but um, hopefully there was something in there for all of you. Uh, and if not, maybe you just enjoy watching the movies, you know, watch some cheesy 80 movies. I'd say Never End the Story is probably the cheesiest. But, um, yeah. So this has been this is Chief Yuya, and this has been another Chief Yuya session on the Chief Yuya podcast. And uh, willfully, um, you enjoyed it all, and um, you got something out of it all, and you can now build further and keep it going. And, you know, this is a side note. Um, <laughs> you know, there have been people who have like, I guess sometimes they're a little confused with, with some of the teachings and, you know, like some people think I just teach Orisha. Some people think I just teach Ifa and Odu. And then some people think they don't know what to think, <laughs> you know, but um, when you become that Magi that extends beyond, ascends beyond the attic of the school, you understand how these things interlink. Why I can tell you that I'm a Hebrew, while I can tell you that I that I'm an Israelite, and be a Babalao, and teach you teach classes on alchemy, and Sufism, and metaphysics, and I can crack open a Bible, I can crack open a Quran, you know, and um, get deeper into just the esoteric elements of the physical world. In the spiritual world, you know, you you have to go through a process and it's not just a jumping up and yeah, I got that. I, I know it. I know it. And, you know, I mentioned that a lot. I know you guys probably used to hear me saying he always talking about people who claiming stuff indiscriminately. You know, because it's annoying. Because you got to bite your tongue and sometimes you get tired of biting your tongue and you just want to say, you know, what? shut the F up. You don't know anything. I could tell you don't know anything just by the way you act. <laughs> you know, like, but you can't do that. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. So, uh, or you could do it, but it might not help. You know, it might be counter counterproductive. But you know, sometimes what you're feeling in, in your heart, you know, especially if you know what it takes to gain that wisdom, that people just jump. I got that. I'm not. I'm not. And you're like, man, you're looking at the scars all over your body, all over your comrades' bodies. And you're like, in order for me to go from Tiferet to Kether, you know how much pain that was? 
how many paths you had to go down. Speaking of paths, I want to mention another thing that was very important. Um, when Atreus, when Atreyu, when he first get on, gets on to Falcor, his higher self, he holds up his right arm and he says, yeah. And you know, when you hear him say, yeah, they're really saying, yeah, just like in Avatar, you know, that scene when they were trying to revive Grace Augustine. And he says, yeah. And then she comes back to life. But he holds up his right hand, his right fist. And then he's flying on Falcor. Well, at the end of the movie, when Bastion is flying on Falcor, the luck dragon, he holds up his left hand. Representing the left hand path. So in our esoteric um, understanding, we have a right hand path and we have a left hand path. Now, one of the things I want you to notice, you may say, oh, man, that's just maybe one was right hand, one was left handed. No, it was on purpose um, because they were playing the same exact music in each scene. They, they played the same music for a trail. They say play, played the same music for um, uh, Bastion. So that right hand path deals with what's revealed, what's seen, you know, um, your mind and your body and, and your spirit and, and separation from each other. And in your left hand path deals with with more, you know, um, going beneath what's seen, um, the idea of sexual union, you know, um, more uh, embracing you know, like the, the transformative aspects and things that would be considered taboo that you shouldn't do. So a lot of times when you hear people say, oh, he's a left hand musician or he follows the left path, they associate that with evil and they associate the right with with good. But that's not that's not correct. The left is dark and, and the right is light. And it's just the interplay between um, the two. So in the beginning, you see. Uh, Bastion making pyramids with his left hand. I believe it was looked like his left. And um, so you see in the inner world, in the astral planes, the warrior energy of Atreo is leading with, with the right hand path. And on the three dimensional plane, now the warrior Bastion is leading with the left hand. So this is a complete balancing now of the inner and outer have now joined together with one another, both riding on Falcor, the hiding that the higher self or the spirit, they're both riding on that higher spirit. Okay. I just wanted to throw that little fun fact in there, but very significant fun fact, learn about the left and right hand path. All right. So now I am out for real this time. We're almost at two hours. All right. So willfully you enjoyed it all and you continue to stay safe and stay well and, you know, feel free to leave. I always put a snippet of these these segments. Well, I usually do um, on YouTube so you can comment and things there. All right. So I look forward to uh, reading your constructive, respectful, responsible <laughs> comments. All right, everyone. Be well. Peace. Chief Yuya out.